0: This is Joseph Clare and you're listening to George Fox Talks Theology. Everyone, Welcome to uh, George Fox Talks Theology. I'm your host, Joseph Clare. We're back again. Really special episode on everyone's favorite topic today, death, a theology of death, with uh, a esteemed uh, guest interlocutor, Dr. Lydia Dugdale, medical doctor, um, has many degrees, many accolades. She's the Dorothy L. and Daniel H. Solberberg, Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of the Center for Clinical Medical Ethics at Columbia University in New York City. Prior to Columbia, she was Associate Director for the Program for Biomedical Ethics and the founding co-director of the Program for Medicine, Spirituality, and Religion at Yale School of Medicine. She's an internal medicine primary care doctor and medical ethicist working around the edges of palliative care. Her first Uh, book, Dying in the 21st Century, MIT Press in 2015, provided the theoretical grounding for the current book, The Lost Art of Dying, Reviving Forgotten Wisdom, with Harper One Publishers out in 2020, um, although it still feels fresh in this global pandemic and now um, sort of uncertain global Political climate. Um, Dr. Dugdale lives with her husband and daughters in New York City and is a friend of mine. And mostly, just happy to have this chance to talk to you. Thank you for being here, Lydia.
1: Thank you, Joseph. It's great to be with you.
0: It is good to be with you. We have so many topics to cover, but they're all going to circle around this theme that you've thought and written a lot about, and is kind of encapsulated in this book, "The Lost Art of Dying," which brings your theoretical and professional ethical and medical work to a more popular audience, I would say. Um, You're also just a literary poetic soul. So it's a joy to read this book. So I highly recommend it. Among other things, Uh pick up The Lost Art of Dying, even if you're a death denier like I am. But in some ways, I just want to know how you got into the whole thing. Um, How'd you get started? I mean, you're not a palliative care specialist per se, but it seems kind of macabre that you're like a death specialist, right? I, one of my favorite movies is what about Bob with Bill Murray? Have you seen that? He's like,
1: maybe a while ago. Okay. Anyways. So he
0: goes, he's like this, this patient that follows a psychotherapist or psychologist up to vacation in the summer, Lake Winnipesaukee. He's like a, he's like one of those patients that's stalking the doctor and it's not a happy scene. Anyways, he kind of gets like ingrained into the family up at their summer hideaway. And Dr. Marvin's son Siggy, I think named after Sigmund Freud, Siggy is wearing all black and he's, you know, he's like 11 or 12, but he's just, for whatever reason, existentially cracked open the question of death at an early age. And it's dawning on him and that innocent, and I think almost um, unavoidable, but for whatever reason, we'll talk about this more, you can avoid it, or at least like put it out of your mind in a weird way. He's just wrestling with death. And so he, he comes to Bob, you know, in this moment of, of great like connections, saying we are all going to die, Bob. <laughs> We're going to die, and it's like you can feel it, you know. I and mean, I I love that. I love that spirit. In some ways, it's animated my own sort of work getting into theology and philosophy. It's like, is it not the biggest question to wrestle with, like what death is and what might happen after death? But for you, Lydia, like how did you how did you get into this topic, this field?
1: Yeah. So. Where to start? Uh, I will say that I grew up in a household where talk of death was common. Uh, my grandfather was a bomber pilot in World War II, and he he was he was a hilarious man. So he was always joking about everything. But when he came back from the war, he also started joking about mortality and not, not in a gallows humor sort of way, but more in the way of my grandfather, which was to make jokes about everything and sort of a pragmatic way mm-hmm. that uh, we're all going to die. It's true. So why don't we get our stuff in order? Uh, my grandfather, when he was in flight school, was uh, his, his plane malfunctioned and he crashed and uh, his flight instructor uh, was beheaded. So that was sort of, you know, number one as a whatever, 22-year-old young guy mm-hmm. hospitalized for uh, months with a crushed pelvis and things that eventually was supposed to be discharged, honorary discharge and insisted on going back to fight. And then he was shot down over a potato field in Germany during the war and then was a prisoner of war. And then probably for 20 years, we all, all of the cousins and and grandkids thought he was going to die. So we would all fly back to Chicago every year to make sure we got to see grandpa one last time and the man just did not die. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So he had so many lives um, and, but this shaped him as a person. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, he would say things like, if one of my grandkids gets a tattoo, I'm writing you out of the will and things like that. So his relationship with his lawyer regarding the will, his relationship with what he called the undertaker. Now we would say funeral director. Mm -hmm. um, He had his uh, funeral service all worked out decades before his death funeral plots you know burial plots all that so this was the kind of environment I was raised in which made death a matter of practical consideration and not scary at all my grandfather made it not scary and then adding to that I think you know similar to Siggy in the example you just gave I'm I was always a kid that was kind of existentially wired um just I just I wondered about all this stuff, mm-hmm. uh, you know. If, for example, so I was raised in a, a a Christian context, and if, for example, there is an afterlife that is better, then I remember asking my mother when I was a really little kid. Uh, you know, no no depression or anything, but like, wow, why do we stay here? Right? Don't we want to get on with a better life? If a better life. Is in fact the reality? uh, Then don't we want to just like get this life over with? You know, Mm. get on with dessert, so to speak. And um, (laughs) and my mom tried to you know teach me teach me some some theology when I answered those questions. But that that was kind of the stuff I thought about as a kid. And then I became a doctor and had patient after patient after patient who was who were woefully ill equipped to die by any number of. of of parameters right so whether they had never thought about um the medicalization of death whether they had never thought about um practical matters relating to uh, a will or their family or talking to loved ones about how they think about their living and dying or whether mm-hmm. they'd never thought about ritual or what practices matter to them or i remember i had a patient who was dying and i was called to the bedside and she was in an existential crisis complete death anxiety And wanted me in her dying to sort of give her answers to these deeply religious questions she was coming up with, which, you know, she was really actively dying, died a few days later. And, you know, I had experiences like that. And so you kind of put all these things together as a doc and you say, well, wow, we have a lot of work to do. Patients have a lot of work to do. Um, So I guess that's how I got interested in in all this stuff.
0: Well, totally. And I, again, another virtue of the book is that your grandfather appears and many of your patients appear. I mean, it's part of the personal literary style you have, but it also is, I think it highlights how personal and human of a question that death is. And for whatever reason we stand out in the field of animal life, we're at least reflecting on death in the ways that we do, if not being, you know, stunned by its finality. Um, I guess, you know, you've written about this, not as much in so the book kind of comes out as the pandemic's coming on but you've written other pieces kind of along the way and the you know 100 years ago 1918 flu um, sort of is on people's mind as like a cultural watershed I guess would you say you think we like collectively in the U.S. or more broadly have had a brush with death and mortality and that that's like shaping us going to shape us are we I mean, the nineties and the aughts felt like the parallel of just a a kind of roaring twenties or just something where it was like affluence unparalleled. And now we seem in 2022, um, to be older, um, maybe not wiser. I don't know. Are we having like a collective moment of, of reckoning with death? What do you think?
1: Yeah, no. Um, so I I wrote the book, I finished the manuscript before we even knew there was going to be a pandemic, but in the book, as you know, Joseph, I sort of riff off of the mid uh, 1300s bubonic plague, which Uh devastated Europe, massive loss of life, probably on a scale we have not had since, although there's some question that the the death counts are accurate. At any rate, um, that massive loss of life in the mid 1300s from the Black Death, also called bubonic plague led to the birth of this genre of literature on the art of dying. It was known by the Latin name Ars Moriendi, but it it was a genre of literature that was really supposed to be for whatever religion, whatever culture, whatever non-religion, ultimately there were all different versions of it, um, a kind of handbook for lay people, for the, the everyday person to think about their mortality and to think about how they wanted to live their lives in relationship to knowing that they are finite, right? So there's a way in which our finitude and acknowledgement of our finiteness brings into relief the things that should really matter to us. Hmm. Um, So that genre of literature developed during the aftermath of the bubonic plague, the earliest version in the early 1400s, and was wildly popular until just after the flu pandemic. Mm. of 1918. So, and the reason why uh, I think culturally, at least the way I'm sort of reading history is that we have 1914 to 1918, World War I with sustained and massive loss of life globally. Mm. And even before World War One ends, we have the onset of the influenza pandemic of 1918 to 1920. So you, you can even read now in the medical journals accounts of uh, autopsies of young veterans, not veterans, young combatants who were fighting in World War I and got flu and they did autopsy and found their lungs were completely saturated with this fluid and um, you know, mm-hmm. virus and or bacteria um, triggered by the flu infection. And their lungs were just like described as sponges. You could just squeeze the fluid out. So these, these young guys were drowning in flu on the front line. So, mm-hmm. so we have two years of global flu pandemic, millions right. and millions dead. So six years total of death. And we go from there in the United States, at least to this period of immense economic prosperity, mm-hmm. which, and not to mention, um, you know, medical uh technology just takes off, right? Antibiotics, chemotherapy, on and on and on. Mm. And we get into the rise of modern medicine. And that's exactly when that period of the 1920s is exactly when this uh, this attention to living well in order to die well, this Ars Moriandi, these Ars Moriandi handbooks fell out of favor. Mm. It was after six years of sustained death that they fell out of favor. They were, people did not want to dress in mourning. People wanted to get on with life. And and you can kind of imagine, right? If, I mean, most of us are so sick of COVID Mm -hmm. that if we emerge, let's just pretend that Ukraine and sort of geopolitical disaster is not happening for a moment, but even getting out of COVID, there's a way in which we're all so sick of it. The last thing any of us want to do is to you know, dress in mourning or hang black ribbons on the door to show that we are a household that has suffered loss, right? We wanna get back to life and the good things that we've missed and the people we've missed and the vacations, the travel, right? We wanna get back. Uh, Last thing we wanna do is think about death. And so now, especially with Ukraine, oh goodness, I don't know. Like, will there be two years of pandemic and four years of war, and will we be thinking about mortality again? because we will have realized that everything about modern life that we thought was a security mm. has proved to be only a false security. Mm. right? I mean, it, it's a, you look at what's happening in Ukraine, there's nothing you cannot you cannot hide, right? People are losing everything, and if that phenomenon spreads i think we'll be thinking about our mortality very differently so my experience you know i've been a frontline um doc here in new york city uh, i did a lot of covid care during the first wave especially but can have continued to do covid care um throughout and uh you know i would i would say that i have been surprised by how little younger folks uh have thought about their mortality despite mm-hmm the pandemic, but I think it makes sense. Younger folks on the whole are not dying from COVID. Mm -hmm. By contrast, I've probably given more than a hundred book talks since the book was released. And um, in audience Q&A, usually older folks, the kind of age 70 and above are very keen to talk about how they are thinking about their living and dying differently in light of COVID. Uh, I mean, I've, I've heard from so many different people who've made major life changes, whether it's, um, you know, pragmatic stuff, financial stuff, but also relational people who have been estranged from their adult children have, uh, you know, read my book and been inspired to sort of make make men's uh, on those relationships. And, and so there've been things like that. Um, people, older folks, again, sort of thinking about these big life questions uh, what is life for what, what does, you know, what does death mean? Is there an afterlife? So I've heard from people who've been giving thought to that too, but they tend, you know, they all tend to be baby boomers and older.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that the earlier group demographic um, has been making major career changes, you know, and I think in some ways our culture um, has become fixated around, you know, identity and self-expression in the form of one's work you know and and obviously change work will change in light of this for lots of technological and existential reasons but there's been some hard resets and there's been a kind of contagion of reevaluation of like am i doing things that I actually care about and what really matters to me and so I, I see that as a positive I think you're right the Ukraine is now throwing a curveball I've been waiting for all these articles to be coming out on like but now, and the pandemic's over, but you can feel that there's a real mute on that genre mm-hmm. because of just like how how much how uh, <laughs> the fear related to global politics is almost the same as as a virus in some ways. So tell me, if Ars Moriendi, the art of dying, and as a manual as a way of life, was lost after that period in the early 20th century, what were like the medical conditions uh, by which we lost the art of dying so was it technological philosophical so i'm guessing it wasn't just that people wanted to forget about death and enjoy their lives but like medicine i mean what we even know of as medicine today is really developed in the past let's say 100 years or so with the hospital so like what are the actual conditions of like your craft that have maybe like taken the art of dying out of the center
1: Yeah, so I think it's important to sort of lay out that, um, medicine and medical technological advance shapes culture and shapes doctors or clinicians and, um, culture also shapes those technologies and people in return, right? So there's Mm -hmm. sort of this kind of like one affects one and the other, you know, it just keeps going around, um. So, you know, in the 1920s, we have the birth of antibiotics. By the 1940s, we have early chemotherapy. I mean, antibiotics was a game changer, absolute Mm. game changer, because routine things that killed people all the time, right, Mm. suddenly became optional. It's extraordinary. Um, You know, pneumonia was the old man's friend. Mm. Urinary tract infections, you get tired, you start kind of getting confused, and then you're dead. Right. Um, But now these things are, you know, three days, five days, 10 days of antibiotics, and you're done and you're fine. You're fine with no residual. Right. (laughs) So then by the late 50s and 60s, we have early attempts at cardiopulmonary resuscitation and organ transplantation. By the 70s, we have combination chemotherapy. So what this is doing is for anyone, again, baby boomers and older, um, or sorry, baby boomers and younger. Uh, life has always been lived with the hospital providing an option for continuing life. Right. And so we don't, we don't see death. There's a, there's a second piece. It's not just this sort of explosion in what medical science has made possible, but there is also an explosion in the number of hospitals between I want to say, I I should have these numbers in front of me. I should have them memorized, but I want to say 1870s, maybe there are 300 hospitals in the U S and by the 19 teens, there are more than 6,000, which is slightly more than we have today. But let's just say in a period of 40 years, Mm -hmm. you go from never having a hospital nearby because there are so few Mm -hmm. to having hospitals everywhere, more than Mm -hmm. we have today
0: Mm -hmm. with
1: a population that is one third of what we are at today. Um, and so that just means that people could farm out, uh, the care of the sick and dying and why wouldn't you, right? And I don't mean this in a, in a negative way, as if to suggest Mm -hmm. that taking someone to the hospital is the bad move. Why wouldn't you, if the hospitals are holding on to antibiotics, you know, there's always the option that they can do Mm -hmm. something. So why, why would you care? Why would you just let people die at home? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so that also, um, Mm -hmm. affects culture right? If, if you're not caring for grandma, as she's dying at home, you don't see that death. Um, but it also shapes, you know, patients come in and make, make demands, make requests of physicians. And then physicians start to develop habits of practice in response to those requests and demands. So if the request is you do everything you can to keep grandma alive, um, you know, short of a judge ruling otherwise, we sort of start doing things like that. And, Mm. and for some that becomes very much the default way of practice.
0: Mm. It's interesting what you say about the kind of the way the professionalization of medicine and the rise of the hospital in terms of volume of hospitals, sort of like moves death to outside of our view in some way, culturally. I remember we lived in the UK for a bit um in graduate school and we had like a party at some professor's house in the spring and this this professor's like 90 year old mother was like clearly at the end of her life I mean she was a frail angelic creature and she was just like in a room but not hidden away like on this bed and it was like you had to see her as you were like going into the kitchen and you know say hi and I don't know how responsive she was but it just like shocked me it's so like Countercultural to my American sense of like, well, you don't mix. That doesn't mix with this, you know, where this is like strength and vitality and party, you know, and then there's like a generational, you know, sort of um, weakness or something that's exposed. I, I, what is that? What is that in the America? I feel like in that moment, I felt very American and the American psyche and the, the way in which we want to like not see death, not see weakness, Um, I suppose the hospice movement, which is actually a fairly recent phenomenon, is sort of like pushed back against that. But what does that say about the American um, soul that we don't want to ever see death or dying things?
1: What does it say? I'm not usually asked to comment on the American soul. Um, Come on. (laughs) (laughs) uh, You know, in a sense, it's it's. uh, i wouldn't go so far as to say that it 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 becomes sort of a a weakness that we are uncomfortable with that but it certainly isn't helpful right so on some i'm a parent you're a parent we've kids uh my kids i i i want for them to learn all different skills right um all different skills and so they do their after school activities and they better study, do their school stuff. Right. And we want them to learn how to sit at a table and use silverware. And um, I have adolescents. So trying to teach them when it is not appropriate to talk back to adults is uh, (laughs) like a basic life skill. Right. (laughs) And so um, uh, the idea that we could sit with the suffering and the dying In a way that is helpful both to them and us, is a skill to be learned and practiced. And so, to the extent that, you know, uh, say Western society has not made that possible, it just means that we're losing some very basic human skills. But it's not just society because there's so many doctors who are terrible, and doctors and other clinicians who are so terrible at it as well, you mm-hmm. know, and so it's sort of place the consult to the palliative care if somebody is dying rather than just caring for them because we're clinicians and this is part of what we do, right? So it's not um, it's it's not that clinicians are immune from that as well. I, this mm-hmm. is one of the problems with the increasing specialization of everything in society uh, mm-hmm. that we've so many of us have kind of lost our general skills. Um, And I Mm -hmm. think, you know, if, if mortality is a hundred percent, which last time I checked it is, then all of us should be just like, we all need to know some basic table manners. I mean, shouldn't it be that all of us should be able to sit with someone who is suffering or dying. And even if it's simply a ministry of presence, right. A, a mm-hmm. care for them by virtue of showing up. We don't even have to say anything. But even that, we're so uncomfortable sitting there saying nothing that we'd rather just not go.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So I don't know the American soul.
0: It... I think you. I think you got it. Yeah. Now I mean I think it's the American soul. It is the Western, you know, technocratic developed soul. We've sanitized life in certain ways that have made. Maybe the more like inscribed ways we had to begin the Ars Moriandi, the the art of dying just by like relationally being interwoven in these passages in and out of life with birth and death. So it's becoming like more, you know, marginalized and therefore um, more um, optional to have faced until you're facing your own death or maybe facing the, the death of a loved one. So, as you think about recovering the art of dying, I mean, this is a very practical, pragmatic point, and something you've experienced, experimented when it with you're obviously in a secular, pluralistic university hospital context. So this is not like you're at the, you know, the convent-run hospice care, you know, in, in the Catholic tradition or something. How how do you recoup? Uh, you write about this in, in the book so well, some of these. Um, these meditations, these rituals, these moments um, for your your patients, and obviously, like a, a non religious kind of open ended context.
1: Yeah, I think my goal, especially in writing the the second book, is to, in a sense, lay out this. Now, this is going to sound really ridiculous, but lay out the menu of what it takes to die well. Mm-hmm. And sort of encourage people to go do their homework. Mm-hmm. Um, I have my own values and beliefs, right? But I um, I recognize that my patients come with all different uh, values and beliefs. Some of which I I know nothing about, right? Others I've mm-hmm. got a little. I'm a little bit privy to. Others I might share. And so my goal, you know, in contrast to the earliest versions of the Ars Moriandi, which were related to the Western church kind of pre-Reformation, my goal is not to create some version of a Catholic or Protestant or universalist religious Ars Moriandi. My goal is to say, look, we need, we can't die well if we don't acknowledge that we're mortal. So sort of step number one is Thinking about one's finitude, not in isolation, because no one dies well uh, in isolation, Uh, but in the context of community. You know, community may be family, it doesn't have to be. So, sort of that piece of it, um, you know, then it ranges from everything of how do you think about engaging healthcare? How do you relate to your doctors? How do you think about these existential questions? How do you think about ritual and practices? How do you think about cultivating the kind of character that you want to be known for? Right. Mm-hmm. So we often talk about legacy in terms of accomplishments, but what about legacy in terms of character? My grandmother, uh, the wife of the bomber pilot, died when I was finishing the book. And she really uh embodied the most um the most sort of beautiful kind of of character one could imagine. Yeah. And I remember being struck by what a loss that is to the world because such a beautiful character. Um you know the old word might be virtuous but that makes it sound like she was a prude and she um th- and that's not the kind of description that makes sense for for her but a character that was full of generosity of spirit, right? And mm-hmm. these, when you think about what you admire most in people, right? It was, it was all of these things came together in my yeah. grandmother and, mm-hmm. and the world was a worse place because she died. And yes, she was like a million years old and yes, she was ready to go, right? All of those things were true. It yeah. was not a tragic death, but the world was a worse place because we lost her character, who she was as a person. And, and I think we need to give attention to that. What sort of character do we want to be? What is our legacy of character that we're leaving for the next generation? Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't happen overnight, right? So we don't become um, humble and generous people without practicing, you know? Mm. Uh, we don't become faithful and hopeful people without practicing. So those are the, the kinds of things I also put on the menu for people to think about.
0: Right, yeah, and I feel like, Especially doing your work in the university context, there's almost like a Socratic liberal arts element to that sort of, hey, here's a really important set of influential ideas from our own cultural history that presents you with with questions about, you know, the nature of death, who you are, your legacy, and to sort of present those questions for reflection um, seems to have its own kind of um, intrinsic merit, especially from like an educational perspective. And yet I do, I guess my, my criticism back just for fun, just because we're having a conversation is Why not? this seems to feed into the like perils of modern life. How are we define modernity being more pluralistic, secular, you know, technologically driven wherever we are in modernity. One of the ways to think about modernity is to think of yourself as being Tossed into a sea of freedom, um, having to make choices about things that used to have guardrails and constraints and like scripts associated with them. So, domains of choice that used to be like heavily governed by communal norms or scripts or narratives or meta narratives are now like the sea of freedom. <laughs> you know, I mean, how do you want to die? And, you know, what gender do you want to be? And just things that are like fundamental um, about us as creatures. And there's another uh, bioethicist here, actually George Fox, who um, you may know. Travis Piquel, who works on end of life care, and he's kind of coining this idea of burdened agency that I think will be part of his his first book. But it is to try to describe that sense of agency and freedom that feels kind of burdened, you know, by the the open the abyss of freedom, um, as it were. So, how do you, how do you think about like the re? Uh, introduction of the menu as being life-giving or just being another torturous like set of optional like ways you can kind of design your life or the end of your life
1: yeah no that's such a great question and it's tricky Um, so you know in one-on-one conversations if someone uh, if someone wants to kind of lay out their cards and ask me to lay out my cards I'm happy to do that right um I'm happy to go deeper with my patients if they want to go deeper that that's fine um I I take a pretty strong stand in a clinical space mm-hmm. against you know for lack of a better word proselytizing right whatever mm-hmm. that um, gospel mm-hmm. might be whatever that good news might be I don't I don't um see that as an appropriate, um, appropriate for me to do in a, in a hospital. So I'm mostly in the outpatient clinic, but in a hospital context, uh, certainly people's own, uh, religious leaders can come. And, Mm. um, also there's the hospital chaplaincy to sort of address some of those questions. So, um, in, yeah, yeah, um, what I often suggest to people Mm -hmm. is that, a useful place to start is to consider the own, their own traditions of their families and to read deeply because the work has been done. So mm-hmm. I often sort of discourage people from trying to reinvent or to invent a new, some sort of version of an Ars moriendi with a little bit of this and a, you know, a little, little salt, a little pepper, a little thyme you know, I, I, I don't know that that is helpful because I think people are quickly overwhelmed. Mm. Um, so yeah, a useful starting place is to sort of what, you know, how were you brought up or what, what, you know, what, what kind of practices did you see growing up and why don't you start by reading a little bit more deeply there? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that gives grounding to tradition that is helpful and often it strengthens these ties with family and community Mm -hmm. that are really critical to dying. Well, Um, does it solve everyone's existential questions? No, but I I don't see that as my work, Mm -hmm. you know, as being, you know, the, the existential therapist for the masses. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, So that makes sense. I mean, it seems to me the two, Wrong paths would be a kind of overbearing universalism, you know, as you mentioned, that somehow like synthesizes the world's religious traditions into a kind of spirituality of dying that is one size fits all, or a kind of rough anti-religious secularism where it's like the clinic is this non-religious space where we're doing a different kind of thing under the name of science. So that that seems to be a kind of nuanced pluralism and principled pluralism that has reverence for tradition welcomes tradition but doesn't you know sort but also sees the limits of trying to um, invent new things or force tradition on people in vulnerable spaces there's all sorts of power dynamics and things there so as you think about your own you mentioned being a christian how do you think about the resources of your own tradition for on the one hand like the explanatory power that christian Mm -hmm. faith offers for some of these like big questions that might otherwise go like unanswered or even unasked in our mm-hmm. culture and then at the more practical uh level of like ritual and symbol um what do you find sustenance there in, in the christian tradition for thinking about the art of dying
1: yeah um so i i have a friend who had this kind of radical conversion from staunch uh I would say hedonism was probably his religion (laughs) to uh, Christianity. And I asked him once what it, what was so compelling. And he said, in his view, um, having kind of exhausted all possible uh, avenues to indulge his, you know, whatever um, Christianity had the best story. It was, it had the most compelling story for him. And I think, you know for someone who's been raised in that tradition that that resonates with me um i can't say i've you know performed some exhaustive um analysis of all major world religions narratives but uh coming from the christian tradition it it's a uh, the story of a a God man, right? Which is how Christians think of Christ fully mm-hmm. God and fully human mm-hmm. who is a sense in a sense sent by God, but is God to die the death that none of us want to die um, to live a life that all of us want to live. Right. And that's the sort of story. There's something really beautiful about that. Um, mm-hmm. it's life giving, it's hopeful, uh, it does provide an answer to our existential qualms. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, you know, I, th- for me, it, it certainly provides a peace that, uh, a peace and not an anxiety that would, um, cause me to, to want to look elsewhere. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh in my old age I've become increasingly liturgical and I think there um are so many resources within the uh the Christian liturgies um uh, particularly uh episcopal or uh, Anglican uh traditions that um really kind of walk people through right they walk people through these times of intense Uh, turmoil such as a death and give you the language to say really give give you the scripts to say because sometimes we just don't know what to say and we don't know what to do and so the liturgies help uh, guide us right they provide sort of that um, that navigation through the choppy waters and then they also remind us of the story that as a as a a culture, a community we profess to believe. And so mm. I think that combination of kind of giving you guidance while also helping you to rehearse mm. is very powerful um, mm. and has been really, really helpful for me as I've done this work, um, you know, as a Christian. So.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, it, it is. Once you start thinking of it. Yeah. Um, In the liturgy and liturgical sacramental rites or whatever, in light of our own mortality and our humanness, you start to see how the whole suite of them is speaking to the human experience, even as it speaks to a hope which is way bigger than our humanity. And something as simple as baptism, you're being assuredly it's a sign of a change of life and new life and freedom, and happens at Easter, but the whole the whole like scriptural basis of it is is found in Romans six, and that's in pretty much every liturgical, you know, baptismal rite that you find is being buried with with Christ and the hope of being raised with him. So thinking about yourself having already died some big death in the midst of your life might change, you know, your perspective yeah. on your own physical mortality or same goes yeah. with communion, you know, you think of feasting on someone else's body and blood as a way of uh, proclaiming someone's death until, um, they come again. Uh, he comes again. I guess I wonder, um, yeah, no, I, I sort of fumbled my way into Episcopalianism Anglicanism on that light. My grandfather was a great engineer in the Bay area and he died, uh, oh. when I was in seminary and, um, we were going to go down to have his memorial and he had, um, gone to Stanford and was like a well-known civil engineer and we're gonna have this big memorial but my dad wanted to go to um, the viewing of his body and no one else wanted to go so speaking of just kind of this sense of like you know ah, last rites you know it was just the sense of like not part of um, a kind of non-religious perspective among some of the the family members and so he kind of asked me to go with them and asked if I could do something you know over there and I was like totally out of, you know, unofficial and non um sort of uh non-authorized, grabbed the book of common prayer, saw the yeah. burial anthem, I am resurrection, I am life, saw that you could anoint someone's head with oil in the shape of a cross. And I'll just never forget that feeling of just skin on his forehead and cold and praying that prayer, singing saying that anthem over him with my dad and It's amazing how central that is to ritualize, to ceremonialize, to put into words, these just unfathomable, unspeakable things, you know, that you're bumping up against and Yeah. So from a Christian hope perspective, and also just from a human uh, perspective, there's something really deep there. I want to have a couple more questions. We'll have to move quickly uh, in honor of your time, but. You write about the fear of death um, in the book, and I, I love that, that chapter. It's something I think a lot about. Do you think that we should fear death? And if so, why?
1: So there are some people who would say, especially within Christian um, denominations, would say that uh, if you really believe, you know, then you should not have any fear. Here's my response. My response is a couple of things. One is that who among us does not fear that which we've never experienced, right? Especially when it's something crazy huge. Mm -hmm. You know, skydiving, for example. I would bet, even though we know the parachute will open, most of us would feel a little bit of apprehension about that, okay? Normal. Right, so normal. So there's, we are wired. We're right. It's fight or flight. We are wired to have uh, some some apprehension, some fear. Um, the the second thing is that there have been, you know, these particularly the Methodists. I think in the 1700s, they were big in recording last words, and they actually had a publication for their faithful that would it was it was almost like obituaries except they weren't obituaries they weren't about how great you were as a person they would just be describing how you died and this was meant to be indicative of sort of the state of your soul and that was not helpful for people at all because people became so anxious about getting their dying right so that it would be recorded properly so that they would be remembered as a good christian uh that it created all sorts of other anxieties and they ended up doing away with that tradition but it was uh you could you could actually get the the little brochures that would talk about how the faithful had died and you had to get that right the other thing i think of um often is this i don't know where it is but you're you're the theologian among us but This scripture where the disciples say to Christ, uh, oh Lord, increase our faith. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is something about all of us where we have our own insecurities, apprehensions, call them anxieties, call them fears, right? All of of them are different. Uh, Somebody said to me once, your view of God is basically how you saw your father. So my father my during my childhood he's still alive thankfully my father is totally loving and when i was young didn't have any money right so you know my view of god for years was a totally loving god but didn't have any money right and so going through those years of not being sure how i was going to pay my bills um digging out of student loans and well i still have student loans but all that stuff Um, there was this anxiety I had to work through, Mm -hmm. right, that financially I would be okay. Kids who grow up with um, money, it it always amazes me how they spend money, right? Because kids who grow up without money never spend money. like super, super careful. And kids who grow up with money will will deplete the bank and just assume it'll be okay. So that mm-hmm. that's a different sort of anxiety. and and regardless, right? So we all have something. For some mm-hmm. people, it's fear of death. I've talked to people who are completely obsessed by death. um you know, kind of like Susan Sontag, the great writer, hang mm-hmm. out in cemeteries, read obituaries, <laughs> sort of like, almost compulsively, mm-hmm. um, there are, you know, there are plenty of women out there whose biggest fear is rape, right? Mm-hmm. This So there are these fears and anxieties that kind of, mm-hmm. you know, get at all of us. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, everyone can figure out what theirs are. Uh, so fear of death for some people is mm-hmm. so huge. For me, it never was for the reasons we talked about at the beginning of this, but um, I don't think it's wrong. I think it's completely uh- normal.
0: I, I agree with you. And I think I agree with your chapter. And I think it reminded me of these early Christian debates in the early church around whether or not you could overcome your fear of death at some point through holiness. And and martyrdom was like a serious threat, you know, in the first couple of centuries. And so the idea was, could you like courageously charge into the Colosseum, you know, to be fed to the animals? And wouldn't that be an amazing testimony? And There were certain Christian voices that actually like pumped the brakes on that. This idea that you could actually become so like, you know, overwhelmingly eternal in your perspective that you've ruined the mystery of the inner connection between body and soul and that the eternal hope of the Christian faith is a bodily resurrection hope anchored in the kind of mysterious, but amazing bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ as the first fruits. And so this idea that like, yeah, just like you said, like the body's instincts to not want to like run toward a ferocious tiger coming at you or jump out of an airplane, even if you have a parachute on your back, like those are, that's like innate wisdom scripted into your, your sort of like image bearingness of the divine, which is both being having a body and a soul, which speaks to the goodness of creation, the incarnation, God, assuming all of human nature, and the hope of the resurrection. So anyways, I, I just say A plus, thumbs up to that. Last question. I call you, I'll nickname you, moniker you Dr. Dying Well, Lydia mm-hmm. Dugdale now, and you've done so much good thinking and reflecting and also practicing. I imagine all your patients who, although imperfectly you've been a blessing to in, in your work. Um, how, how do you think about your own death? How do you want to die?
1: Oh <laughs> well, it's funny, I mean, we talk about this so much in my household you and it's not gallows humor, but it's what I work on. so um yeah <laughs> I don't know, I don't know how much to give away. but no, I you know it would be great to be at home surrounded by loved ones relatively painless um I I, I don't think I've changed my thinking much since I was a little kid that, it'd be fine. Sooner would be fine. Um, Mm -hmm. My, you know, my kids always like to say when we're running up the stairs in our apartment building, last one up's a rotten egg. Right. (laughs) So uh, we have this joke about, you know, Last one to heaven is Ratnick. Um, anyway, that's, that's what I was debating whether I should actually say that on the camera. Um, which isn't to say there's like, you know, suicidality or anything like that. And I want to be, be very clear about that because that's a, a reality. And actually, especially when I speak on college campuses, that does come up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think um, I just want to make sure that there's some sobriety around that. Uh, but yeah um so no no desire to hasten death um certainly a desire to live a, a faithful to live a, a life well lived right mm-hmm. um and ideally not to be in the hospital <laughs> That's do you, have,
0: do you have any practices um of your own to keep death in front of you or is your work in medicine (laughs) enough you don't need a skull on your desk the 200
1: books on death (laughs) surrounding me all the time yeah no um it's funny because i've i've thought about memento mori which i write about right having those objects that remind you of death and i really think my my books do and my work does Um, but certainly, you know, we moved to New York city six months before the pandemic hit. And then Mm -hmm. it's been a constant refrain, especially those early months of 2020, when everyone was locked down and, you know, we moved from a a proper house to a small Manhattan apartment. My kids didn't know how to use devices to do school. And it Mm -hmm. really, there was a lot of tension at home. And I, we just kept saying, you know, as a family and I have adolescent girls, um, we kept saying, uh, we need to treasure these days because we don't know how many we Mm. have together.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And so that was our refrain kind of during the pandemic. And now that we're emerging, the conversation has shifted a lot to Ukraine. Uh, Mm -hmm. We watch the news together as a family. And we, I, I, you know, there was just a family of four that was killed over the weekend trying to make an escape. Uh, mom, dad, and two kids, and yeah. all, the father still had a pulse. I don't know if he ended up dying, but I talked to my kids about that. Um, mm. Mm. And not, not they're they're not kind of anxious, nervous types. So I think you have to know your kids too. Um, mm. But I talked to them about that just to help them keep in mind the reality of the world that we live in and mm-hmm. we cannot take our current peace for granted, mm-hmm. um, nor can we take the lack of war in the United States for granted, nor as we've been saying for the last two years, can we take our good health for granted? Mm-hmm. And, and we need to think about what kind of a family we want to be during these days that we're still together. Mm-hmm. And so we, this is like our conversation as a family. Um, probably far more often than my girls would like, <laughs> but uh, I think there's wisdom there, right? And yeah. um, and some sobriety and some compassion for the world. Um, thinking yeah. about how, I mean, my girls are very keen to figure out how they can help, right? Whatever that might mean in, in their yeah. small ways. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So that that's kind of my <laughs> my uh, memento mori is, is my work. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. It's beautiful though. I think there's so many parenting manuals that say similar things around like create life-ready kids. You know, to be skilled and successful. And that makes total sense. I want that, but in moments like this, it does stir up something deeper. And you have like life-ready and successful could mean totally different things depending on what. Sh- which historical moment you're in the things you'll face. And it's not simply that you want your kids to be respectful and get good grades, but you want to know, want them to know how to suffer what it feels like to not be in power and control or to live in tumultuous times of war. And that's a different set of virtues and requires a different kind of conversation. And so, yeah, yeah it does feel different than I think the world you and I grew up in, in some ways. All right, Dr. Lydia Dugdale from Columbia. Thanks for joining us on George Fox Talks Theology for this special episode on death. It's been a treat. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Joseph. It's been great.
0: This has been a production of George Fox Digital. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the George Fox Talks podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you stream things on your phone or computer. Check us out on the web at georgefox.edu slash talks, where we have videos, publications, and more. And we're also on YouTube at youtube.com
1: slash georgefoxtalks.